Hi, I'm Jarrett Murphy, and this is 112BK. Coming up, environmentalist Bill McKibben lays bare the challenges ahead after a UN panel's latest and loudest alarm on climate change. The biggest hydrocarbon producer in the world, the United States, is led by Donald Trump. The second biggest producer of hydrocarbons in the world is led by Vladimir Putin, who's busy poisoning his critics. And the third is Saudi Arabia, which is currently dismembering people that doesn't like. And then Kings County Politics reports that some black-owned property around Brooklyn is being taken by the city. It's either a confederacy of dunces and just total incompetence on the city's part, or it's a sinister way to take people that don't have money, their property, and displace people. Hi, welcome to the show. Just ahead, we'll talk with Stephen Witt of Kings County Politics about his nine-part series on black and brown-owned property being taken by the city in gentrifying neighborhoods. But first, Bill McKibben is one of the most vocal and active environmentalists going. Founder of the website 350.org, he's helped organize individuals around pressing climate issues in 188 countries across the globe. Ashley spoke to him by phone on Tuesday to get his perspective on whether the latest and terrifying U.N. climate report will move the needle. Here's that conversation. Bill, thank you so much for joining us today. What a pleasure to be with you. So I'm just going to jump right in. The recent IPCC report included both negative and somewhat positive outlooks. The good news is we can still prevent global warming from rising, is what I'm hearing. But the bad news is that we are not on track to make that happen. So I was wondering what your initial thoughts were on the release of the IPCC report. Look, this is very much in line with what scientists have been telling us for the last 30 years. They keep issuing us these warnings. We don't do anything about it. And five years later, they issue another one. And the main difference is that five more years have passed, and so the curve that we have to travel has gotten considerably steeper. Uh, You know, this report says that if we had an unprecedented historical effort, that we would still be able to stop things short of outright catastrophe. The problem with that, of course, is that the biggest hydrocarbon producer in the world, the United States, is led by Donald Trump. The second biggest producer of hydrocarbons in the world is led by Vladimir Putin, who's busy poisoning his critics. And the third is Saudi Arabia, which is currently dismembering people that doesn't like. So I... Mm. One has to be a little dismayed at the prospects for swift political action. On the other hand, that's why we build movements, to try and build the kind of public force that makes it impossible for crappy politicians to stand in the way. Can you talk to me a little bit about what that kind of movement would look like? The climate movement has been building now for about 10 years, and it exists all over the planet. And it's accomplishing a fair amount, blocking pipelines, new coal mines. As you know, New York State uh, was great activists convinced it to ban fracking in the state, convincing city after city to pledge to go to 100% renewable energy. California, the whole state, just made that pledge. At the same time, everyone's doing their best to weaken the fossil fuel industry. This divestment campaign modeled on the one that uh, helped and apartheid in South Africa has been extraordinarily successful. We're at $7 trillion worth of 
uh, endowments and portfolios that have divested from fossil fuel. Shell Oil just declared that it had become a material risk to its business going forward. So those are the ways we press. I'm confident that we will eventually win. I'm not confident that we will win in time. Global Mm. warming is a timed test. And if we don't win soon, then we don't win. Bill, Katie Work, the interim chief executive at the World Coal Association, responded to the IPCC report by making emissions the focal point and not fuel source. She maintains that there's still room for coal use in the future. What do you make of something like that? Uh, I mean, it's not even worth having a conversation. Coal is on the way out because everyone recognizes that it's a filthy fuel source in every way and now more expensive than renewable energy most places in the world. Uh, The much bigger danger is people switching to gas from Mm -hmm. coal instead of switching to renewables from coal. That would delay by 20 or 30 years the change we need, so it's a very poor idea. What about nuclear energy? Um, So far it hasn't made it into the climate conversation, but could it have a role? Depends how much money we have. Nuclear power is incredibly expensive, sort of like burning $20 bills to generate Mm. electricity. Um, And its price keeps going up while the price of renewables keeps going down. So my guess is it's going to play a fairly small part going forward. Can we quickly look at the relationship between capitalism, climate change, and the rise in proto-nationalistic governments? Because it seems to me like these things are really rising together, and I don't know if that's true, but that's the thread that I'm putting together. Well, there's a lot of, many of the worst countries in the world are oil states. You know, we're getting a reminder of what Saudi Arabia is like this week. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows about Russia. The worst parts of America, Koch brothers at all, are all uh, got their money out of oil and gas, and they use it to corrupt our political system. It crosses ideologies. Venezuela is a petro state too, and it's in, uh, it's a pretty hideous place to be hanging out these days. I, I think that getting off fossil fuel comes with many side benefits besides saving the planet. It'll be nice to watch uh, the Saudi royal family start to run out of money. When did fossil fuels become, and the climate, become a political issue? Well, Pretty much from the beginning 30 years ago when scientists first blew the whistle on climate change. Mm-hmm. We know now from very good reporting in the Los Angeles Times, the Columbia Journalism School, and other places that the fossil fuel industry, the big oil companies, knew everything there was to know about climate change back then in the 1980s. And if they'd merely said what they knew, um, we probably would have gotten to work much more quickly. Instead, they engaged in what's got to be the most dangerous cover-up in history. They spent hundreds of millions of dollars spreading the absurd idea that climate science was doubtful and so on. Uh, You can tell how well they succeeded because we have a president who thinks climate change is a hoax or it might change back or, you know. So they cost us a generation. Um, That's what politicized this issue and it's why it's politicized. It's odd that it's politicized because right. it's, you know, at root about physics and chemistry, mm-hmm. neither of which are particularly political. 
Talk to me about your organization, 350.org, responding to the report. I know that you're redoubling your efforts, but how can people get involved if they're interested, people like me? I mean, 350 is 350 spread out all over the world, but there are chapters everywhere. And so 350 Brooklyn and 350 NYC and 350 in the Bronx and so on. And they do exceptional work. Uh, uh, working with groups like Communities for Change, they were one of the reasons that New York City took the really powerful step of divesting from fossil fuels mm-hmm. in January. But it's the same in every continent. And I mean, this is the, you know, the the best we have sort of framework for global movement. We're not as strong as we should be, but we're, um, you know, we're not. We can't match the fossil fuel industry with money. But we put a lot of people uh, out there to work, and, and any more, anyone who wants to join in would be greatly appreciated. And if that's something that our viewers are thinking about joining in or learning a little bit more about what you do and why you do it, they can just visit 350.org to do that? That's right. The name and the website are exactly the same thing. <laughs> so if they go to 350.org, they'll be all taken care of. Bill, one last question. Can you tell me what you feel hopeful about right now? I feel hopeful about that movement, Mm -hmm. um, that there are a lot of people engaged, and I feel hopeful about the fact that the engineers have done their job and brought down the price of sun and wind. Uh, Now it's up to the politicians to do their job, or really more realistically, it's up to the rest of us to force them to do their job. Forget Mm -hmm. about the idea of political leaders. Uh, We're going to have to do the leading here and drag these guys uh, along as best we can. Thank you so much, Bill, for your time. I really appreciate it. Actually, a real pleasure. You have a good day. You too. The city has moved to take property from some black owners in Brooklyn in an effort that's intended, it says, to restore and retain affordable housing in the borough. So far, the Department of Housing Preservation and Development is using something called the Third Party Transfer Program to shift ownership to, well, that's what's not clear, and why our next guest is here. All this has been uncovered in a nine-part series published in Kings County Politics, written by the website's founder, Stephen Witt, along with Kelly Mena. And here we have Steve with us today to explain why this is happening and how. Good to have you back on 112BK. Steve, what is the story? Thank you. Well, this, first of all, the story came to me. Uh, I got a call from a source that said, Steve, you got to come down. There's this woman, a 74-year-old woman or 70-something that's losing her brownstone. And they say it's a distressed property. And I was, you know, I work a lot, you know, and I was like, well, you know, give me a little. He says, Steve, you got to come down. You got to look at the paperwork, her son. So I went down there. And when I went down there, she literally, it was a beautiful, immaculate brownstone. And there was, she actually had workers there, you know, carving, you know, a little bit of the brownstone. And I went in, new, totally done up. So not a distressed property. Not distressed at all. And the block it was on was one of these, you know, white people walking down, sitting, having their coffees, you know, on Nostrand and Dean Street, right? And I went in, and the son, very mild-mannered guy, was showing me paperwork. And it's like, I don't understand it. We, We got this notice 
they're, they're taking our property and my mom's owed, you know, my family's owned this thing for like 30 years. And I was like, wait a minute, something's wrong. And, and I looked through the paperwork and sure enough, I, you know, it seemed every, everything the guy said was right. It, he had canceled checks, he paid his water taxes, the property taxes. It certainly wasn't distressed. I immediately called the photographer and called Robert Carnegie, the city council guy. I'm like, Rob, you, you gotta do something. Something's wrong here, right? And, so what, what was your picture of what was happening? Who was, who was coming to take the property and what was their justification for, for doing so? Well, it, it was HPD, Housing Preservation and Development, right? And uh, they have a thing called the Third Party Transfer Program is what I began to unravel all, after all this time. And it was created like in the 90s or maybe even before um, when New York City had a lot of distressed properties, when New York City had like 10,000 abandoned properties on their hand. And so the idea was if a landlord's letting his or her building run down, the city can take it, give it to a nonprofit to fix it up and run it responsibly. That's, right. that's ostensibly what's supposed to happen. Correct. Right? Correct. Well, in this case, eventually, after I called and Rob called uh, the city councilman, they reversed it, but they reversed it kind of blaming the homeowner who's been paying her property taxes for 30 years and only owns that one brownstone. And they said that she made a mistake and paid it to the wrong property, which was kind of absurd because for 30 years some, right? So they reversed it, although to this day, I don't know whether it's reversed. Okay. I've spoken to their lawyer several times. But this is not the only property that you've well, become aware of, What right? happened was I did the story, got a lot, of, ton of views, which I was really happy about, and I figured, okay, that's the end. That's that, right. I got a call two days later, a Haitian-American retiree. It's like I read your story in Kings County Politics. I have a property that my son and my grandson live in, and it's five units, and they're taking my property for back taxes. I went there the same thing, third-party transfer, he had receipts that he paid it. It does seem, and this is some of the city's fame, you know, any city, when they want to find violations, like a restaurant, mm -hmm. if they want to go after you, I mean, he had, one time he had like five building inspectors there. They were mm -hmm. checking everything from the nails in the wall to the, you know, to the paneling, and they found some violations, but here was a retired guy. He was a retired ambulance driver with his wife, and he, you know, like a lot of elderly people, he religiously would go every June to pay his property taxes, wait for the receipt, and get it. it you know, it's mm -hmm. like a, you know, a ritual, almost, a ritual yeah. that he did. You know, it's like a older guy likes oatmeal with two <laughs> things of sugar. He, he was very exact about it. It had a ring of truth to me. So, I called HPD, and at this point, now it began to unravel that there was some real problems in uh, DOF, Department of Finance, because it appeared they were taking money and not recording the money was taken. There was problems in communications between Department of Finance and HPD. There was problems with DOB. I mean, this guy was there every day, and HPD would say, go to Department of Finance. Department of Finance would say, go to HPD. HPD would say, go to Department of Buildings. Right, because Department of Finance runs the property tax system. You pay your property taxes. Right. Them, HPD can come take distressed properties. That's how they come into it. The property tax angle, the two properties you've talked about, how much money did they allegedly 
oh, is this the idea that they hadn't paid, at least according to the city's version, for years and years? Or was it a relatively small amount? Do we know? Well, he, here's a couple of things that you have to realize. One of the things that I didn't mention, it's very important. These are paid off properties. These are people that bought properties in 85. They paid off their mortgages. Yeah, they're owned free and clear. Right. So, and back in the day, they weren't worth much. But now we're talking about in Brownsville, it could be a million dollar property, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the taxes were jacked up, I believe, and the water, you know, in some cases they were 40,000 and some 100,000 and some Mm -hmm. 120,000. But they had receipts that they paid for some of it. Mm -hmm. And then HBD also tax on interest. They also all of a sudden, building inspectors start showing up at the place. My feeling was, if I'm an elderly guy, and I own a $1.2 million property, and I owe $80,000 on it, I'll just go to the bank. Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, he went to the bank, and the bank signed a letter that you know, it could be taken care of. But at this point, unbeknownst to him, the way the third party transfer program works is there is some discrepancy. HPD says, oh, we contact him 70 and 80 times. There is no mail. He doesn't, you know, they throw in a flyer occasionally and they did a foreclosure proceeding with 60 other properties where they just had to block and, and, and the lot number, they didn't even have a name of, of the owner. And then in the papers, it said, well, we put an ad in the, in the chief. You mm-hmm. know, it, you But know. it's just before Christmas of last right. year, right, that they put this 60, so, 60 So they were actually in. making repairs, paying money, and they no longer own the property. So we know that thanks to the intervention of council member Carnegie, the first woman you described, the 74-year-old mm-hmm. woman, her property is in the process of being returned to her, we think, but we don't know for sure. Right. The second one you described, the 69-year-old Haitian man, where does that one stand? That one is in, it's, it's a weird thing. They took his property, and today they went to lock the door, and I just heard from his lawyer today. And the sad thing is, since they took the property, the tenants have had no heat. They called him yesterday and said, can you put on the heat? And he had to call his lawyer and say, look, I don't own the property anymore. She says, you can't let him be in the cold. So he went and turned on the heat. Since he's lost the property, he's invested thousands of dollars trying to get it up to code. Do we know if any other properties are involved? Yes. And then two days later, all right, again, I got a call from a, a law firm that said, we've been reading your stories. And here was a case of Barbadian... Uh, Auto mechanic that worked on Atlantic Avenue, bought the property in 1960, 19-unit property. And this one really, to me, has my antennas up because the, the guy that bought it was Barbadian. And he wanted to kind of keep it with Barbadian people, like extended mm-hmm. family kind of people. Old building, but it's on McDonald, a half block, a block from uh, Restoration Plaza. Mm-hmm. And I used to cover bed for our time press, so I know the area very well. Getting very gentrified between two train stations, 19 units, and um, the, the man died. He left it to his three kids. The son was alleged and does seem as a little bit of a screw-up, all right? He fell behind on the taxes, didn't fix it that much. When, when the family found out, they brought in this cousin from the Midwest who went to Morehouse College. 
And he immediately, like, well, what's up? He signed an agreement with the city in the third-party transfer, paid $25,000. Again, wasn't credited the property. Every single one of them have paid, have canceled checks, right? Mm-hmm. Paid, paid the property taxes, and uh, it wasn't recorded. Let me just this. Public officials, the uh, public advocate, the mayor, have they reacted to this at all? I'm very disappointed with him. You know, Tish James, who's usually pretty good at this, is running for attorney general. It's like an anti-Trump thing. They're running against Trump. They don't want to turn on fellow Dems. Um, de Blasio's like, look no evil, see no evil. They're, the third-party transfer, you know, I have to, and then I have to go into the last one, but this one, the, the people they gave it to, the uh, Urban Homesteading Assistance Board, <clears throat> is a Wall Street nonprofit. 20th floor. They were established in the 70s, mm-hmm. and they get their fees from supposedly turning it into co-ops. But you're talking 19 tenants. They're Now they own it. They're refusing to fix anything unless they get money. The building itself, I talked to the super, it's in really solid shape. I mean, the, the boiler, it's, it's good. It's an old building, could use some windows, could use this. This guy, this fellow that went to Morehouse college said he immediately had all these violations he had to do with. He said he dealt with 82% of them, and they still took it. So UHAB is on Wall Street, actually. They, they helped start city limits and we used to share an office with them. It just happens to be where they're, where they're located. But uh, let me ask you, just sort of as a last question, what do you think is happening here? Is this a, a bureaucratic snafu? Is this a deliberate attempt to pick particular properties in particular areas? What's your sense of what's driving this? It's one of two things. It's either a confederacy of dunces and just total incompetence on the city's part, or it's a sinister way to take people that don't have money, their property, and displace people. And in particular, 25 McDonald, um, the more I went to a meeting with Urban Homesteading, they showed up with an attorney. I had to, t- I had to interrupt the meeting and say, excuse me, you, you realize this is an attorney for Urban Homestead. And then she's like, oh, yeah, I advise you to get counsel. You know, it, it, it just, it, it stunk. I, I have no other way to put it. Stephen Witt, founder, publisher, and editor of Kings County Politics. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And now some news. State Senator Simka Felder's chief of staff has been placed on leave following allegations that he drunkenly groped and sexually harassed a woman at a Republican fundraiser last week, behavior that was corroborated by two witnesses and that one acquaintance says is, quote, typical for him, end quote. The Times Union reports that last Thursday, Rodney C. Powis approached a female lobbyist at an Albany County campaign event for GOP Senator George Amador. The allegations include Powis suggesting that she have sex with another man at the event and putting his hands on a woman's right breast and buttocks. Senator Felder is up for election in November after fending off a vigorous primary challenge last month. For the first time, some New York City voters can expect to use two pages when they go to vote in the November 6th election. On Tuesday, 20 days before the general election, the Board of Elections announced a modification to the ballot for every borough except Staten Island. The ballot will include three questions pertaining to mayoral charter revision commission, but those cannot be on the same page as the names of the candidates, so there will be a double-sided, two-paneled, perforated ballot that stretches 38 inches long. As usual, voters are expected to deposit their ballots into the scanner, but on November 6th, they'll have to separate the two perforated panels and place them each into the scanner separately. 
If a voter improperly separates the two panels and causes a machine to jam or insufficiently read the information, they'll have to walk their ballots back to a poll worker who will issue a new version of the damaged page while voiding the return sheet. New Yorkers should be prepared for a slower and more convoluted time at the polls. Just what we need. The MTA is working on a pilot program called the Freedom Ticket, which would allow riders in the LIRR's Atlantic branch to buy a single fare for subway, bus, and commuter rail service. Looking to go further, Comptroller Scott Stringer has released a proposal calling for a one-ticket ride covering the entire system. Stringer argues the shift to a one-fare ride is a matter of basic economic fairness. The 13 neighborhoods in the Bronx and Queens that have some kind of commuter rail but no subway stations also have majority non-white rent-burdened populations with, the Comptroller says, little to spare for the exorbitant commuter rail fares. Stringer also pointed to a single-fare commuter rail system as a way to alleviate subway overcrowding. Speaking of the subway, NYPD Transit is gearing up to host a haunted subway, not that the MTA needs any help being a nightmare. The event will take place on October 18th and 19th at 15th Street and University at the Union Square Station. Celebrity chef Adam Harvey admitted on Monday that he did, in fact, poison a neighbor's tree. After the neighbor refused to cut down a large maple that was blocking the solar panels on Harvey's $1.5 million Windsor Terrace home, the one-time Top Chef star was accused of boring holes in the trunk and inserting some sort of poison. Harvey copped to a misdemeanor charge of criminal mischief and must serve 20 days of community service as part of a plea deal. So apparently, he's turned over a new leaf. Ashley's back tomorrow in a conversation with the founder of the Brooklyn-based book club, Well-Read Black Girl. Hope you can join us. One One Two BK is written and produced by Ross Tuttle, and also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Ariana Rosas, Emily Boghossian, and Naeem Van. It's directed by Clinton Filson Jr. and recorded by Eric Haugaseg and Antonio M. Rosario. Edited by Mira Al-Rahim and executive produced by Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leith, and Sasha Mathias.